You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Amen. Good morning, church. Oh, there's lots of you this morning. We had a Biola takeover up here this morning in the band. So thank you, Bioloites, for coming and being here. Yeah. Love it when you guys are back and in town. So uh, how many of you were able to make it Monday night? We did a first of a lecture that we did. Anyone get to make it? Yeah, we had a good time. Uh, we're trying to just figure out ways to uh, bring more of God's word to you. So we had a culture and theology night. Um, for those of you who missed it, it is actually on YouTube. It's on all of our regular things. So if you want to go and see what that lecture is about, I won't even tell you what it's about. Just go and watch it. And you can see me not walk around the stage for an hour. So I actually sat. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's a feat. Um, with that, uh, I want to kind of just jump right into where we're going to go today so we make sure we have enough time to get through everything. So uh, when I was in high school, maybe you've heard me say how much I wasn't a big fan of high school. And as a senior of high school, I was always looking for ways to get out of the next class any way that I could. And so when I heard that the blood drive was coming, I was very excited because I could give blood. And if I timed it right, I could leave one class early and then I could miss the next class and they gave me cookies. It was a it was a win-win across the board. Even though I didn't like giving blood, I don't like needles, I was like, for the cause, I'll do it. And so, and the cause being getting out of class, not helping other people who might need my blood. And so I remember doing it, and I, I did the deed, and I sat there, and I missed the classes, and I made it so I only had one class to get out. And I remember it was Wednesday night. Uh, I distinctly remember that because it was our youth group night. Now, our church had a really fun thing they did. It was, it was like the youth leaders meeting that took place before the actual youth group. And so anyone who was interested in being a leader and volunteering and kind of knowing where we were going would come to the pastor's office and we would have a meeting before that group and then he'd delegate all the responsibilities and we'd pray and then we'd go to youth group. And I remember I, I drove in and my little 280Z, and I showed up, and I had to go up the stairs because the youth pastor, his office was in the gymnasium, which is, you know, put him in a different building. So I went up the stairs, I get there, and I walk into the room, and Mike looks at me and says, are you okay? I'm like, I don't know. Why? He's all, because you're white as a sheet. I said, what are you talking about? He's like, you need to sit down. And so he's like, sit down, and he's like, take off your varsity jacket. So I took off my varsity jacket, and my arm is drenched in blood. And I'm like, oh no, that looks bad. And apparently, the, the nurse that had been jabbing me with a needle had made such a nice hole that it wasn't clotting the right way, and it had reopened, and all of that blood was just pumping out of my body. Um, I don't know how much I lost. The body holds about one and a half gallons of blood. I don't think I lost that much, but it was very dangerous. I was driving. I could have passed out while I was driving and hit somebody. I could have fallen down the staircase in the gymnasium. I could have sat there and he could have thought I was asleep and I could have just bled out. A lot of things could have happened because here's the thing. We know that life is in the blood, right? We know that. Leviticus 17.11 says that life is in the blood. Without blood, we... I give easy questions. I really do. You don't have to be afraid. You're all, live? No, that's the wrong answer. And so... It's funny, as we jump into the last symbol that we're going to do in this series here, we're going to talk about blood. And as we talk about blood, you can see blood in all these different ways, but really what it does is we're going to go through God's story once again, and we're going to connect it to sin, to death, and ultimately we are going to connect it back to life by the time we end. So I want to pray, and we're going to jump into this section of Scripture. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for the symbol of blood that flows through the entire story of God. Lord, I ask that as we kind of just look at all the ways that blood is referred to and used, that we would see that you are culminating all of this in your son and that every, every part of this hinges on who he is and what he did for us. Lord, for those that aren't covered in the blood of Jesus, and, and I, I pray that A, that they would understand what that means by the end of the sermon. And B, I pray that they would come to a place where they have placed their life in you and are covered by your blood. Lord, if there's anything that I shouldn't say this morning, I ask that you take it from, from my mind, from my mouth, from my notes. Lord, I don't want to be a distraction, so I ask that you would use me in any way you seem fit and that ultimately you would be glorified and your name would be lifted high through this. I pray this in your name. Amen. So maybe as a, a younger Christian, if you're a Christian, you've read the Bible, maybe you notice something really quick. The Bible is a really bloody, violent book. Is that a fair statement? I remember as a young Christian, I'm like, there's blood everywhere. As a matter of fact, blood is spoken of 355 times in the Bible. It's just a mega theme. It starts with it and ends with it. It's just, it's everywhere, no matter what's going on. The, the Lexham Bible Dictionary would define blood this way. In the Bible, blood functions as a symbol of life and death and serves as a sacred substance in sacrificial rituals for purification, consecration, and atonement. So, like I said, it starts with blood and it ends with blood. But we see in the middle is that it all hinges in the person of Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to look at six points today. And I'm only going to take six. I know there's a lot more that I could have done. I had to pick and choose this week of which ones I was going to use. But the first one I want to do is I want to look at the blood of shame. Genesis 3.21 was that reference where it will be. So we have started this series every single time the same way. We start at the beginning of creation and we end ourselves in Revelation, right? That's kind of what we've done so far with every one of these series. And so we see there's a God who creates everything, the stars, the heavens, everything that we see. And then he makes humanity the pinnacle. He makes man and woman in his image, that we are different from everything else in all of his creation, that we're made in his image, that there's something different about who we are and we are special. And it doesn't take very long for this perfect relationship to be ruined. The serpent comes, he lies, he manipulates God's word. Adam and Eve say, hey, maybe life would be better without God. Maybe we'll go ahead and live life on our own and we'll become gods unto ourselves. And in that moment, sin into the world. And everything was fractured. Everything was ruined. Nothing was the way it was supposed to be. In that moment, they realized they were naked um, and they were filled with shame. It's interesting. They started to hide from God. It's like, that's a weird thing to point out. Well, here's the reality is sin makes us feel shame. And what they realized is they had such an intimate relationship with God that they could be naked before God without any problems. But sin makes us dirty. Sin makes us doubt who we are and what we are made. And we want to hide parts of our lives from that. And that's what's happening. This relationship, this vulnerable relationship was completely ruined in that moment. And they no longer wanted God to see them in all of who they were because sin made them feel shame and dirty. And so what happens is God's walking through the garden. He calls out to Adam and Eve, hey, where are you guys? He knew, but you know, he's, he's a good God. And they, they tell him what happens. And then what do they start doing? They play the blame game. Well, it's the woman that you gave me is the reason why. So he's like blaming the woman and God at the same time. Like, oh, that's a double backhanded blame. And then the woman's like, well, it's the serpent. And that's the reason why this happened. And so none of them own it. 
And then so God's like, hey, listen, like I told you what would happen if you tried to do life without me and if you ate from the tree. And so what happens is he hands out these punishments for disobeying him. But what we see in this moment is that God covers their nakedness, so he's covering their shame. And he clothes them with animal skins. Now, it doesn't use the word blood when we first talk about this, but last I checked, when you take skin off of something, it's very bloody. Fair statement? Yes, that's a fair statement. Like, that's going to happen. There's going to be bloodshed. And what we find is that there was bloodshed in covering the shame of Adam and Eve. That God said, I love you. Even though I'm giving you punishments, I love you. And I'm going to cover the shame of the sin and what it's done to your life. And so what we find is the first death in the Bible, because of human sin, is an animal which will become a bigger picture as we get to the book of Leviticus and it will repeat over and over and over again in the New Testament. So the second blood is the blood of justice. It doesn't take more than a whole chapter to get to the next scene where we deal with blood again. And that's going to be in Genesis uh, 4, 8 through 11. We'll, I'll read that in a second. But what we find is the first family has their running with blood and what that looks like. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Maybe you've heard that story before, the sons of Adam and Eve. And what happens is the story goes something like this. Cain and Abel are going to make an offering to God. They're going to go and thank him for his blessings upon them. Abel comes and he brings the best of his flock, the first fruits of his flock. He says, I love you. Thank you for being so kind. I'm going to give you my best because you are best. And then Cain brings his whatever's. And he really brings a lesser offering to him. And so as God is there, God receives and accepts Abel's offering, but rejects Cain's. And Cain becomes angry. He becomes frustrated. And what does he do? The only way to stop this frustration, the only way to appease this anger is to kill my brother. And so in Genesis 4, <clears throat> 8 through 11, we'll read this. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And what we see is that the blood of Abel cries out. The innocent blood of Abel cries out. That there is a sin that was committed against him and there was injustice that was done. See, sin has to be dealt with. There's no way around it. We, we can't let sin go unpunished. God will deal with sin. And, and we feel this, right? We feel this idea of we don't like injustice. We don't like it when injustice lets, is let free. We hate when sin goes unpunished. We want justice for those that are wrong, even if it's us or someone else. That's why we watch these court cases, right? We want to see justice prevail. We see that with murderers or thieves or assault. You name it. Well, Why? We, we feel right and wrong. Well, why? Because it's written on our hearts because we're made in the image of God. We're going to understand right and wrong. We want things 
made right. There is something inside of us that wants things made right again. And what we feel is the yearning of our hearts back to the garden, desiring what could have been and should have been, and we want so desperately. See, we know when injustice is done to us. We, we can feel it, even if it's little or big. What I love in the story is that we have a God who is not going to let sin go unpunished, and that there is a a brokenness has taken place and God's going to say, I'm going to deal with this. How much would we hate it if we had a God who disregarded sin? Well, you'd say, well, I'd like it a lot if it was applied to me and my sin. We love that, right? Like, yeah, I'm okay if a God's going to not punish sin if we're talking about myself. But if you're the one that has been affected, if you're the one that has been wronged, are you okay with that sin going unpunished? No, of course you're not. And that's, that's the thing. God understands that, and God is going to take care of sin justly. And that when wrongs are done, there is a God of justice who will deal with it. I'd like to say that things got better after Cain and Abel, and that it's like, oh, and they figured it out, and, you know, that was all great then. Well, that's not what happened, actually. What we see is that sin spreads to everyone and everywhere. It just, it doesn't stop what it's doing. It's affected all of humanity in this sense. People just would do evil, whatever they wanted to. They would only do what was right for themselves, and they didn't care about anybody else in that process. And it got so bad that we see is that in Genesis chapter 6, 5 through 6, this is what happens as we see humanity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The pinnacle of his creation, tainted by sin, had become so horrible that there was a, there was a sadness that took over God's heart to see his great creation and how much he loved them. And so what we see is that we know that we have a God who's holy and pure and just. He has to punish sin. And so what he sees is that he sends a flood to wipe out humanity. Yet he saves one family. A remnant of them was going to be spared as he's going to create humanity again. But it's interesting. You go, oh, so sin got taken care of. There's no, no. Sin is a part of us. We are totally depraved in every nature. And so that sin came with them on that small boat when it landed and they started over civilization again. And what we see is that God says, I'm going to start over. I'm going to choose this man named Abraham. And this man, Abraham, he's going to be um, the, the, the father of my special people that I'm going to use to bless the entire world. And this offspring is going to grow so numerous, you won't even be able to count them. It says, as, as you can't even count the stars in the sky. That's how many of your offspring there's going to be. And one of these offspring is going to fix the problem of sin and the brokenness of the world and will reunite God and man once again. And God did, like he said, and the Israelites started to grow, and he started to bless them over and over again. And what we find is that there's a giant fam that takes place, and that God works through a crazy story, which maybe we'll get to next year, that we'll talk about this story of what happens during this famine, but God then 
spares them. He brings the Israelites into Egypt. Okay, and they're there. And then what do they do? They multiply like rabbits. That's, that's just how that works. And there's just tons and tons of these Israelites all over the place. And then that Pharaoh passes away. And then another Pharaoh comes into power and he doesn't know or care about any of the history that's connected to that. And he says, we have a problem. We have too many Israelites so I'll enslave them, I will make them uh, do the work that I need to have done, and I will make them a marginalized people. And that marginalized people called out to their God to save them, to take care of them. And that leads us to the next time we see blood in here, which is my third point, the blood of covering and protection, or also known as the Passover. That's going to be in Exodus 12, 3 through 7 and 11 through 13 is the verses that we're going to look at. And so God's going to save these people and he's going to use blood as a way to ultimately save them. He sends a man named Moses to confront the Pharaoh who's taking advantage of God's special people. And he says, let my people go. And if you don't, God will show up. He will show his power and his love for his people. And he's like, no, ain't going to happen. And so what we have is the 10 plagues that God then sends on all of Egypt and the surrounding land. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the 10 plagues and how they're connected, really what God is doing is God is attacking every single one of the gods and the deities that the Egyptians worship and love. And he's saying this, I am stronger and more powerful than any deity that you think you can worship. I am bigger and greater than all of that. And I want you to see how powerful I truly am. And all these plagues culminate in this event where God is going to kill every firstborn male in the entire land. Even the animals. Like, that's crazy. It's like not only just the, the, the kids, but the animals as well. He says, but I'm going to provide a way for the firstborn to be saved. And we see this in Exodus in 12, 3 through 7. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. So, you're going to take this lamb. You're going to take this pure, spotless, young male lamb. And you're going to kill it. And you're going to take the blood. And you're going to wipe that blood over the doorpost of your house. And so, what we see is this, this lamb is going to give its life. And what they're going to do is they're going to cover the doorpost. And what are they saying? By doing this, I acknowledge that God is who he says he is, and if God is going to give protection, he will do that. And so I'm showing everyone around me that I trust God, and I believe God, and I am not going to follow the other gods that the Egyptians follow. That's what they're saying in that moment. And a life is given, so a life will be spared. And so we see it play out a little bit more in 11 through 13. It says this, 
In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your stuff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this event is called Passover. It is when the angel of death came through the area to bring judgment on a, uh, a nation that did not worship and follow him, that was oppressing his people. But if the blood of the lamb was on your home, then the angel of the Lord would pass over your home and you would be spared. So the blood in this section tells us there is a certain kind of blood that brings protection and offers a covering from death if that blood is over your home. See, this event is still celebrated today by the Jewish people. And what they're remembering is something really important. They're watching God and how he saved them, but he saves them from their oppressors and the oppression that comes from it. And as God then freed these people, he brings them out of Egypt and he takes them to this mountain he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You're going to be my people. It's this, this huge promise that God makes that I'm your God. I'm never going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. And he gave them rules on that mountain so they could have access to him. Okay? So which means my fourth point, the blood of access and sacrifice. That's all out of Leviticus 1 through 10 is what we're going to look at. And so we need to understand something that for God's people to have access to him and to enjoy him, they needed to have things that would make it safe for them. Now, we don't think of it that way. Like, you don't realize, oh, this is God being kind, and God is actually making it so that they can be around God. God is holy in every way. He is so pure. He is so powerful. He is so righteous that for us to stand in his presence, because we are tainted by sin, we would die in his presence. We cannot take the glory of God. It is so much. It would consume us. And God knows that. And so God says, for you to be safe in my presence, there's all these things that need to take place so you can be in my presence if you follow all these different things. And so what he starts to do is he shows them that you need to be made clean to engage me. So because sin is so pervasive in every single human being that's ever walked the face of the earth, he provides this list of ways to be made clean. And many of those require a sacrifice meaning that blood had to be poured out so God's people could enjoy him and have access to him. These sacrifices would provide all sorts of different things, and I'm just kind of high-leveling through Leviticus, um, peace and forgiveness of sins. They'd take away guilt, but they would offer a substitution. And so what they would see is that there was a substitution that could stand in our place. This blood could be a substitution for us if applied appropriately and in the right way. So this started with the tent that they would make, and they had a traveling tent that they would do these things at, and then ultimately they would build a temple that was in Jerusalem. And uh, even though it was good for God's people, his special people, and even though that they would have times to be clean, they kept finding this problem. They kept sinning. They kept doing the things that God said don't do or doing the things that God said not to do. And there was a constant need for these sins to be forgiven all throughout the year. And there was constant sacrifices happening constantly all the time. 
whether that was a goat or a lamb or a bull or a dove, no matter what it was, depending on the sin, there had to be this life given for sin. And what we would see is that the point of the fact that there was always this illusion of a better sacrifice, that there was a better blood that was needed that would actually encompass all of this. If you think about the temple and all the sacrifices being done, it would, have, it would have appeared that there would be a river of blood flowing out of the temple from the amount of blood that was poured out. So that just seems just over the top. That just seems excessive is what it seems like, Simon. Why so much death? Why are they killing all these animals? That's the point. Because sin is so horrible, it's a part of everything that we do that God was showing his people how horrible sin was and that this life had to be laid down for your sins to be made clean and to be forgiven. That was the big idea that they would have to see all the time. It highlights how bad it is that we have to have a substitute. And this went on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years And they would always be reminded along the way that there was one that would come and there was one that would save us from our sins, from the wrath of God. So it would be taken care of once and for all. To this point, blood is kind of negative. It's like, well... That's, that's because of my sin. That had, that had to die, and that blood was poured out, and it's a negative sense. But it's all about the change because God is about to reveal how he was going to take care of the sin problem once and for all. He was going to use all of the history of these people to show why this new sacrifice was better in every single way and how he was going to shut down the temple and the altar you think about that, here we are at church. Um, we don't have a bunch of goats in the back. You're like, we don't? No, we don't have an altar. I don't have a knife in my back pocket. We're not killing animals. I remember as a young man, I asked somebody one time, because I was new to the church, I'm like, I don't get it. Like, I'm reading all these sacrifices. I just went through Leviticus, and they're just killing everything. And I just said very innocently, why don't we kill animals? And I asked someone older and more mature, and she had been around the church her whole life, and she looked at me and says, I don't know, but I'll try to figure that out. Like, really? Like, I didn't understand what a big deal that was that she didn't understand that, but now I do. Like, the entire reason why we don't have that is because there is a better sacrifice that came that was laid on the altar, and God accepted it. It says, the altar is now closed. I am no longer accepting any sacrifices because the perfect sacrifice has come. Which brings us to my fifth point, the blood of the new covenant. You can find that in the Gospels, uh, Matthew 26, 28, Luke 22, 30, Mark 14, 24. And what we see is that this all comes to a point where this man, well, a baby at the time, came named Jesus. And he shows up in a very unique way. He meets all these prophecies. The Bible has these prophecies of who this Savior, this Messiah was going to be. He had to come from this place and from this bloodline and be born in this way. And he actually met all those requirements. And as Jesus grew, he started to teach and communicate God's word. And he did it in a way that was so different. People said when Jesus spoke, he spoke like one not who's reading scripture, but one who wrote the scriptures. 
one who has authority when he speaks about them because they come from him. And we see that he starts to do miracles, that he's healing people, he's raising people from the dead, he's controlling nature. Everything listens to his voice and does what he says. And he starts talking about why he's coming. And it's this, there's this really cool moment where it's in the book of John, uh, right at the very beginning, Jesus' cousin is baptizing all these people, right? And he's saying, hey, repent of your sin, be, be made clean, and turn back to God. That's what he's doing. And Jesus starts walking up to where John is, and he says this, this super powerful statement in uh, 129. And the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you're like, that's not that big of a deal, Simon. Hold on. What do you think every Jewish man and woman and child would think of when they heard Lamb of God? Anyone? Passover. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been going through this, and they talk about the blood. They talk about the sacrifice. They talk about how God had saved the people of Israel from the Egyptians, right? They would have been, every generation would know that. When it says lamb, they know exactly what John is saying. And when he says to come to take away the sins of the world, where do you think their mind's going? To the sacrificial system in Leviticus about all the ritualistic ways that they could be made clean. So they'd be thinking about that. So in this statement of John, he makes a super powerful statement that there is, he is going to be the lamb that's going to cover you and that will take away all the sins of the entire world. That's a big statement. It wasn't a mistake. He knew what he was saying. See, Jesus would then speak about the fact that he was going to be sacrificed and that he had come for the purpose to save the lost and bring peace between man and God and through his blood. And this all kind of came to a head on the last night before he was going to give his life as that sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so what we have is in Matthew... Matthew 26, 26 through 29, we have the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we are actually going to take today, which I think is very fitting. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the, trans, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I'll not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He's saying exactly what he's going to do, that I'm going to pour out my blood for you to bring you back to God, to have your sins forgiven, to be made clean and right with the Father through my sacrifice. And I love the promise, right? He's also promising access, isn't he? I'm not gonna drink of it again until you are with me in my Father's kingdom. So now we see that there's a sacrifice that covers sins that gives us access to the Father completely. And that's what he's going to do. You see, Jesus knew that he was the better sacrifice. Like, the whole point of all the, the goats and the bulls and going over and over and over again, and like, it's not gonna work. It's, it's, not, it's not doing it. The author of Hebrews would talk about this. 
Um, I'm just going to do Hebrews 10 So in the back. just That's the one I'm going to do. Hebrews 10, uh, 4 through 10 is what I'm going to read. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Those are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's the shutting down of the altar. That's the blood that he pours out from himself because the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to atone for the sins of the world, but the blood of Jesus, perfect and holy as God himself, is the only one that can. And he would go to the cross. And when you think of the cross, what you need to think about is the fact that he is going in your place as a substitute the death that he took is the death that we deserve. The punishment that we should have gotten, he took for us. And as you start to look at all of this, he becomes a sacrifice. He gives his life so we can have life. He becomes a substitute. He takes the place that we have. He covers that shame. Do you, you start to see how the blood starts to transcend through all of it? And it's all accomplishing all these different goals. And anyone who has called Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior is covered in that as well. He becomes their substitute. And so when God then sees us, he sees his son's righteousness and perfect sacrifice. He says, my wrath has been fulfilled to the pouring out of my son. Come, you are welcomed in to be a part of my kingdom. And the access that we lost in the garden has now been restored to us. That's what we have in Jesus. That's what he did on the cross. His life for our life. My sixth point is this, the blood of victory. Um, it's out of Revelation 19, 11 through 16 is where we're going to be. Um, I debated using this one. I'm not gonna lie. This is... Um, a verse that is full of immense hope and might be one of the most terrifying verses in the entire Bible, if you understand what it's saying. It points to the fact that there is a day that is coming. There is a day of judgment coming. Very much, just think about Passover. Think about Egypt and the judgment on Egypt. There's a day that is coming where, depending on which God you worship and trust and put your hope in, there'll be judgment or there'll be a home party. And all of this judgment focuses around blood. And so I want to read this part in Revelation 19. Um, it's a super powerful uh, picture of Jesus. So we're talking about the writer. We're talking about Jesus. It says this in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, 
and on his head are many diadems or crowns, if you don't know what that means. And he had a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. There's our word. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of the heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is just a picture of Jesus and his power and his victory over all sin and death and any that would oppose him. Everyone's clothed in white. And so is Jesus. But his white is drenched in blood. Now, I remember asking as a young Christian, oh, why is, like, what is, why is his robe bloody? And I remember someone saying, oh, it's because of the sacrifice on the cross. And he's saying, look at what I did. And I conquered sin and I conquered death. And that's what it is. And then I realized that that's not what it's about. That's actually not what's being communicated here. It's actually a reference to Isaiah 63, 2 through 4 is really where it is. So I'm going to read that. And so you can understand why there is blood on the robe of Jesus and what that blood represents and who it is. So it says this starting in verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who, need, who treads in the winepress? The idea is he would tread down the wine and it splash up and it would look like blood. That's the picture. I have trodden the winepress alone and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel for the day of vengeance was in my heart my year of redemption had come. I'm going to keep reading. I looked, but there was no one to help me. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger and made them drink in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That is terrifying. We think of Jesus go, oh, he's the Lamb of God and he's so good and he's so great and he hugs people and he's always just so loving. And yes, he is when he came the first time. But this Jesus is coming back again and it will be different for those that have placed their life in Jesus. That is comforting because if you are on the side of Christ, you have victory as well and you are with him. But if you are not on the side of Christ, there is judgment that is coming for all who are opposed to him. And the blood that we see is everyone who stands in opposition of Jesus. There is nothing more terrifying than the judgment of God. And yet there is nothing more lovely than the love of God who's put that on his son so we could be with him. Think about this. When Jesus first came, he was a gentle lamb, but when he comes back, he's more like a lion and a warrior judge, and the time of forgiveness is over. But anyone who has taken the blood of Jesus and painted it over the doorpost of our heart, 
the judgment and the death will pass over us. Here's the good news. We see all these different expressions of blood, right? It's like this one does this and this one does that and that one does that. It's like who can meet all of that? See, it all culminates in the person of Jesus. He meets and fulfills all of the requirements of all the blood throughout the entire Bible and who he is and his blood as he pours it out. And what I want to do is I want to just apply what we learned to what Jesus has done for us. And if you've placed your life in Christ, you have these things also. It does not have to be hopeless. You do not have to have fear of God when judgment comes to the world, and it is coming. One, Jesus covers our shame. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. It doesn't matter what you've committed. That the blood of Jesus covers our shame the same way that the animal skins covered the shame of Adam and Eve. The things that you don't want to talk about, the things you've done in secret, the things you would never want to have your nakedness exposed to, the blood of Jesus covers it and takes that shame away. Two, Jesus brings justice from sin. Sin requires justice. Sin requires the wrath of God, that he will punish all sin. So there's two things here. One, if your life is in Christ, you are cared for, you are taken care of. That justice that you should have had poured on you was poured out on Jesus, right? So that's, that's the good news. The other thing is this. We are wronged and taken advantage of and injustice done to us all the time, aren't we? And we have a God who loves us so much that he, he will take care of every single injustice that's ever been taken care of. Not one sin will go unpunished. Every sin will be dealt with by God because he is a just God. Jesus, three, is our protection from death. He is our Passover lamb. We don't have to fear death. Everyone in here, I don't care how close or how far away you are, we will all experience death in some way, shape, or form at some point. And you don't have to fear it. You can sleep well knowing that if you don't wake up, you will wake up in the presence of Jesus. And you will be with him for forever. So we don't have to fear death. We don't have to worry about what happens to us. We're, we're covered because we have the Passover's lamb. Jesus brings peace, takes our guilt, is our sacrifice and our substitution. He did it for us. He is our substitution. Five, Jesus is our new covenant. He fulfills all the laws that we couldn't. He met God's perfect standard in every single way. He never sinned once. God's standard is perfection. We can't meet that. But because we're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, we are now seen as perfect and righteous in the eyes of God because of the sacrifice of the Son. Jesus redeems us, and he brings us access to God, that we don't have to fear going before God, that we have access to go to the throne of God at any time without fear of wrath or judgment or punishment. He gives us that. His blood gives us that ability to have access to him. And the one that I love the most is that Jesus is our victory. 
we have victory over sin, we have victory over death, and we will be with our victorious king for forever if you've placed your life in him through the blood of the new covenant. And what I love is that he offers it to anyone who would call on his name. And if you haven't done that, my prayer and my hope would be is that today would be the day where you would call on the name of Jesus and you would call on the power of his blood and his sacrifice to bring you these things that I think these seven things are all things that we desire and we want in our life, aren't they? And Jesus offers it freely to all that would call on him. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray, and then I want to move into a time of communion where we can reflect on what Jesus has done for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your great sacrifice. It is humbling to even try to begin to put to words what you have done on the cross. And I fear that I have done a poor job of it, but I know that you go before me and that you work in the hearts of men and women the way you need to. Lord, I do ask that as we are contemplating all these things right now, as we think about the blood and what you've done, that we would realize, for those that are Christians, what we have in you. That maybe we're still holding on to shame and guilt, and we don't have to because your blood's covered it. Maybe we see, keep thinking that we have to pay a some kind of penance in some way for our sin, but your word says that you've already done that in full. Lord, for those that maybe fear death and have uncertainty about what the future holds, they would know that if the blood of the lamb is painted over their heart, their home, they don't fear death. That the moment we close our eyes to pass from this side of eternity to the next, that we will see our Savior, we will see our God, we will see our King. And, and Lord, for those that don't know you, that they would realize that I am not trying to scare people towards you, but I'm letting them know the truth that there is a real judgment coming. And it depends on what blood you hold to. You either hold to your own blood and think that your life can do the things that you think it can to atone for sins, or we place our hope and our life in the blood of Jesus, which does it. Lord, for any man or woman here today that would want to do that, that they would call out to you, they would ask you to wash them clean with your blood, and that you would make them new as well, giving them hope and life, because life is in the blood. We pray these things in your glorious name, amen.